whatever they are, the UAPs have the same capabilities now, 60 years later, 70 years later, that they had then. And our aircraft have no more chance of staying with them or following them now than we did then. So, relatively speaking, their technology hasn't improved, but it's still as far ahead of us as it was back then. And ours, our vaunted technology, the good news is we can take better pictures and in infrared or video, that sort of thing. All we can really do is capture a better picture of something that we still can't catch. <laughs> Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome or welcome back to another conversation in our collection of podcast series that focuses on markets and investing from a number of different and fascinating perspectives. The father of quantum physics, Max Planck, famously said, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And for anyone that has made a long-term living from markets, that quote may resonate. You see, the investment and trading world is filled with big personalities that are often battling out dogmatic perspectives. It is also filled with an abundance of brilliant and curious minds that are open to expanding their horizons. In our galactic macro series, we seek to open the boundaries of what is possible. We do this by drawing from experts working at the bleeding edge of technology, science, environment, global conflict, exopolitics, exploration of outer space and inner space, and consciousness. A core theme that spans many of the conversations involves the growing government revelations regarding non-human intelligence from advanced civilizations. This core theme is fundamentally important because it weaves every other topic into its fold. You'll likely have more questions than answers after tuning into this series, but it's guaranteed that you will have changed the way you look at things and thus the things you look at will also have changed. And with that, please enjoy today's episode, hosted by David Dole. Niels, thank you for the introduction. Larry Hancock, pleasure to have you on the show with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Happy to be here. Appreciate it. Well, this is going to be an exciting conversation, and I think that we're going to be delighted to have you because you're going to help our audience fill in, I think, some gaps around the the topic of, of UAPs, and as well as how, you know, some of the functions of our government and the classified, you know, world uh, work. Before we dive into those, those fun topics, uh, Larry, why don't you share just briefly a little bit about your background with our audience so they can contextualize the information that you're going to be sharing with us today? Sure. I've, I've been involved with this subject since about 1965. 
I was a member of a couple of the early groups, APRO and NICAP. So I've, I've been involved with the topic, following the literature, following the reports, did a few reports myself back in those days, and then went off to college, the Air Force, uh, majored in anthropology and history, had a career in communications, technology, personal computers, and then finally, after retirement, moved back into writing and writing about history, primarily history related to the military, the Cold War, Cold War history, national security subjects, and also became quite involved in document collection. I'm board member of the Mary Farrell Foundation, which has about two million documents online relating to Cold War history. And so people generally refer to me as a document geek. Uh, and with that experience in finding and reading documents, I've written a number of books, including Unidentified, the National Intelligence Problem of UFOs, which gave me a kind of a relaunch into the whole subject of UFOs, UAPs in contemporary time by kind of restarting, going back through everything that's become available in terms of the documents and files and contemporary information on the subject. So that's my background. That's amazing and the perfect background for, for today's subject. So I was fortunate enough to, to kind of seek you out, Larry, you know, as somebody that's, that's also been around the subject for a, a long time. There's two points of the conversation that I've noticed that have come up amongst colleagues, friends, family members, and, it, and I think you'll be able to help shed a lot of light on this. When it comes to the subject of UAP or, or UFOs as, you know, formerly known, one of the first things that I hear pushback on is people tell me, well, there's no way, you know, there's really deep secrets like this in the United States. That's the first thing. And then the second piece is that, well, you know, if there's UFOs, where, you know, where's the, where's the evidence, right? Where's the information? And I always respond to both those things is one, the United States is probably better at keeping secrets than you might imagine. <laughs> and two, there's actually a lot of really, really good data that's that's compelling and, and worth examining. And these are the things that I want to get into uh, with you today. And let's start with kind of the 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 intelligence community and how things work. When when you and I spoke the other day, one of the uh, comments that you made that I thought was so important for folks that have watched recent hearings on UAP and the David Grush testimony. There was a lot of conversation from, you know, house, you know, house members, you know, well, let's just throw this guy in a skiff and let's get that classified information. And, and it doesn't really work like that, right? Maybe you could explain to the audience a little bit about how classified programs actually work in the United States. In, in the real world, classification has, to, as you would imagine, has to do with reports, memorandum, investigative reports. And one of the things that we saw throughout the history, decades worth of history with the subject of UFOs then was the fact that there were two storylines in play. One was the storyline that you were going to get from the public affairs office of the Air Force. The other was the documents that were being collected inside air technical intelligence, air intelligence. Those were not public documents. Those were confidential at best. Some of them, they range up through classification levels, depending upon what the subject is and depending on how the information is collected. A lot of people don't realize that sometimes it's not the content that is actually classified. 
It's the collections device. In other words, what instrument were you using? Uh, yeah, which reveals a lot about what you can collect. So a lot of what is protected is your your ability to collect information, not what you got. And so um, lots of things are routinely classified, and they're called compartmentalized sourcing as to the device. You know, did I get it from a, a, a radar site? Did I get it from a satellite? Did I get it, you know. Uh, so that's very much protected. But the short answer is over the period of time, there were a body of reports that were collected inside the Air Force and in Air Intelligence and inside the UFO Project Office that were not visible to the public. And for decades, ultimately, we did get those, but only after the entire project was closed down. And then they were made available in microfiche, like, okay, here's 20,000 microfiche forms. If anybody ever saw a microfiche reader, that should discourage you right there. Little pieces of plastic. But researchers went to the effort of actually getting all of those, reading them, collecting them, making available in a database. So quite frankly, this subject actually could not even be studied until four or five decades after all that work had been done where we could see the data. Occasionally, the Air Force had allowed a magazine to come in and do an article, or but, but to see a very limited number of files, and obviously in a very controlled manner. One of the things that we learned since then, that the Air Force went through phases, and it was, it was the body that was chartered with this. Yeah, FBI did some investigations, Navy did some investigations, but the Air Force had the overall responsibility. And we found that what happened in 1952, just kind of fascinating, the Air Force was convinced these things were real. And as early as 1947, we see Air Force intelligence reports that say they're real, they're foreign, they're advanced technology, we don't know what they are, we suspect they must be Russian because we know they're not us. The Air Force remained convinced that they were real, and that's a consensus story. In 1952, there were a huge number of incidents on the East Coast and in Washington, D.C. in particular, that got a, a huge amount of press coverage. The president became so concerned about it that he called the Air Force in. The Air Force couldn't give him an answer as to what was going on. Uh, actually, they were a little embarrassed because they couldn't even put interceptors over Washington, D.C. for an hour. It's like not something you want to talk about at the height of the Cold War. No boss. We didn't even get our aircraft there. So the air president said, well, I'm going to call somebody else, calls the CIA, says, okay, I'm not happy with the Air Force explanation. You guys look at it. CIA technical intelligence looked at it, started to laugh it off, then got into these same files I'm talking about and actually generated a memo from the director of the CIA saying, yeah, we in the Air Force think that this really needs to go all the way up to the National Security Council because they're real, and in particular, there's activity occurring over our atomic warfare complex in the Southwest. Uh, they were very concerned about it. It got kicked up to an NSC subpanel, and basically the subpanel said, we will only consider CIA and Air Force what you want to tell us if you can convene a scientific panel that will support you so that we have 
we have somebody behind us. This is this is too hot. We we need somebody else to weigh in on this to say you're not making a mistake. Then we'll look at it. The panel was convened. The net result of the panel being convened was there was decision to treat this whole subject from a psychological warfare standpoint and move it into a communications domain. They even called in Walt Disney. And and essentially, their concern was, yeah, there's something real going on that we don't understand. But if we don't quash this, there will be so many reports that it will be a, a national defense problem. And so we have got to downplay it. So a long-winded answer to your thing is, it's confidential documents are created and then access is controlled. And generally speaking, it takes something like 40 years to gain access through a normal document declassification process, or unless Congress does something special in the way of convening a committee that has authority to release documents for its own study or for the public. Is it, is it fair to say, Larry, that at this point we... We do have, because of that time delay, and you've been in this for decades yourself, that one of the things that we've learned from information that is in hand and has been validated decades later is that effectively the United States Air Force was saying one thing but doing another, meaning they were telling the public, hey, don't worry, really nothing to see here. And yet behind the scenes, we now have, you know, records that have come out that are showing that they were absolutely, as you're saying, deeply concerned and that this was something that should rise to the, you know, to the highest level of, of security conversations for the United States. Is that is that accurate? That is, that is absolutely accurate. In fact, one of the fun things I do in the book is to actually give some of those statements side by side. What air intelligence is saying and what will air force public relations was saying at the same time, and there's, there's a total disconnect. Uh, and this isn't surprising in terms of anything that's related to national defense. But I, what kind of troubles me at this late date and time is this week, NASA, there's a statement from NASA about their panel that's been convenient studying it. And part of their statement was that one of the things is they lack is vetted technical observations historically that you know that's why we need new observations when what troubles me is that i'm not sure that they have taken a look at actually what exists in the files because we do have numerous vetted technical observations uh from radar sites actually radar video recordings of movements of uaps uh one of the most significant uh and actually it shows that I mentioned that this thing was studied not just by the Air Force, but the FBI generated reports of things going on at atomic weapon sites. The Army, uh, the Army was had an installation right beside one of the first national atomic weapon stockpiles, and they started seeing a wave of UFOs down at ground level, very low altitudes. It troubled them. They reported it to the FBI. They reported it to the Air Force. They got so little response from the Air Force that they deployed their own observation teams with satellites, which are optical instruments. These people are trained to do measurements, to do calculations. Many of them were artillery spotters. 
they collected this whole body of information recording these things moving at tremendous accelerations, stopping instantaneously. They recorded all of that and reported it to the Air Force, who actually didn't study it. But we have all of those original Army recordings that are still on file, and we can see them. You know, that is vetted, curated, technical information that was collected back in 1948 that nobody seems to want to look at. Interesting. You know, and for those, for those listings, so we're recording today and this will be published in a couple of weeks, but today's, you know, September 15th. And for those listening that may not be familiar yesterday, uh, September 14th, NASA had their, uh, their live hearing and kind of their UAP, you know, report, which was pretty much a dud. There was just, it was embarrassing, really. They, they didn't, you know, they didn't do anything uh, meaningful and, and kind of playing dumb. To, to your point with that there is information, there is good data there. This is a good segue, uh, Larry, into, you know, one of the areas where you spent a lot of time. This is a huge area of fascination and intrigue for me is the relationship between, you know, our, atomics la- our atomic laboratories, weapon sites, testing sites, and, and UAP activity. And I think people are more recently starting to hear about this, again, from the Grush, you know, uh, hearings. And I think there may be some confusion that this was just recent type activity or in recent, you know, times. And, and I think what you're going to share with us is that this has been going on for, for a while. Why don't you tell us, l- let's, let's crack into that, that topic, UAPs and, and, and nuclear related things. Sure. I, and that is one that's a very good point, because even in the recent congressional hearings and when you talk to people, you would get the impression that the atomic weapons connection goes back to maybe 1975. And that's it. Some people talk about events at, at ICBM bases, but the, they don't seem to go further back in history. Actually, the history and the real, as I said earlier, the real concern started as early as 1947, 1948, when the real anomalous activity began over both the radioactive materials plants. And, and the interesting thing is when you study it, which we have, uh, it, there's a sequence. First, it starts at the radiation manufacturing plants, weapons grade, uranium and plutonium. Then it goes to the engineering and assembly centers. Then it goes to the stockpiles. And it's sequential. There, there are bursts of activity over time Whatever this is, whatever is driving the activity, actually understands atomic weapons well enough to track the development of the whole complex. You know. Yeah, and I want I want to pause on that for a second, Larry, because what you're what you're revealing is 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 almost a bombshell in its own right. And I didn't know this until hearing this from you. I was under the impression from the stories from George Knapp's reporting with pulling information out of out of Russia, like. I had this concept that they're flying over armed nuclear weapons, and you, your research is saying no, that whatever is monitoring us has a, a much more in-depth understanding, and it's the process. It's every stage of that. Is, is, is that correct? Absolutely. It's every stage from development and design to stockpiling. One of the, the interesting things, of course, is that the early days, there weren't thousands of weapons or 10,000s of weapons. There were dozens of weapons and that they were in one place one in one place only for a period of a couple of years and the ae 
Atomic Energy Commission had control. Essentially, there was civilian control over the weapons. And they were all at a storage site outside Sandia Base in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You know, and you won't hear anybody really talk about that. But there's a whole series of activities that goes on around Sandia Base, the Manzano storage site, that, that ranges all the way from overflights to actually ground level, you know, you should be nervous when the UAP is hovering 10 feet over the atomic weapons dump. Uh, or if you're not nervous, you should be really curious. Uh, the weapons were moved out and started to be deployed at, at different storage sites. And the, what I talked about earlier was Colleen Base in Texas, which was one of the first ones of those where the, the Army got involved. But but then the the interesting thing is there's there's a gap in the deployment. After they, after we had maybe half a dozen storage sites around the nation, then the weapons were deployed to dozens of strategic air command bases. And the interesting thing is we don't see the same pattern at all those strategic air command bases. It, it, this all fades away. Their time-delimited burst of activity, then they fade away, and then they show up again. And they place they show up again as as soon as we start to emplace intercontinental ballistic missiles, they're back. That's in the early 60s, okay? And then they stop. Kind of like, okay, fine. And then they come back again. But when they come back, they only come back at a very select series of ICBM bases that have had missiles before. But when we do something special, when we put multiple reentry vehicle warheads on those ICBMs, so that rather than carrying one H-bomb, they can carry 10 H-bombs. There's a point in time where essentially our ability to push the button and generate in a nuclear strike increased exponentially because of those warheads. And that's when we see another burst of activity in the mid-70s, which is what everybody talks about, but they don't go any back further in time than that, so they don't see the big picture. It seems that their interest, very much as I would imagine our own, like our own government, if we were monitoring, you know, the Russians and the Chinese, it's, or maybe more, theirs is a little bit more narrow. It's in the development phases. It's like, okay, great. You guys develop missiles. Like, we're really interested in that. Now that you're dispersing them, whatever. Oh, now you've developed a new missile or something that's a lot more dangerous. We're interested in that. Is, is that kind of what you're, what you're seeing? And, and we have an intentions team that has looked into this with some pretty rigorous methodology. And, and that's what we see. It's, it's a survey, but it's not a total survey of our military capability. It's as if it were a survey of our atomic warfighting capability that is monitored as it changes over time. What type of device can you build? Can you build an A-bomb? Can you build an H-bomb? Okay, how many? Did you build in a quantity or did you, just, did you deploy them out all over the place or are you kind of keeping control over them? And then, so they're, what they're really looking at is our strategic atomic weapons capability. And in between, you know, it, it's not an assessment of the total military capability of the nation. It's what's going on with strategic atomic weaponry. So 
so let's do this. We're going to take one step back and then we're going to jump back to this because I would like to, what, what I love talking to, you know, scientists and people at the, the cutting edge of this, like yourself and, and you just, your leadership in this has just been amazing is I, I like that you guys are looking at the data and you're saying, Hey, what do we know for, for a fact? Like, let's, let's take real data here and then maybe build some hypotheses off of that. Before we do that, because I'm very keen to hear, you, you know, your your thesis as to what you think may be going on. I want you to actually speculate a little bit. But before we do that, I know a lot of people listening will be like, oh, well, you know, that just sounds like the Russians and Chinese spying on us. Let's take a step back and talk about the, maybe the physics, the defying of physics as at least we currently understand them of UAP, because you guys have a, have done a lot of work on that stuff as as well. I think a lot of people maybe presume or people that don't believe in it is like, oh, well, maybe it can be explained away as something else. But there's there's now a lot of sensor data that is captured and for a long time on on the physics. Maybe you could give us some examples of like, what do we know or what do we think we know at least about the their physical capabilities? And which is Which is a fascinating subject because we do have the air intelligence studies from as early as 1947 and 1948. And these are... These are serious people. Uh, something has been seen. The assumption is that it's reconnaissance, could be the Russians. The, in fact, almost all the, the reports initially are written as if it probably is the Russians. And the early speculation was that the Russians had some advanced air technology that they had gotten from the Germans at the end of World War II. And jets, you know, the Germans were flying reconnaissance jets. So, there's there's good possibility that's the first thing that they looked into was is this you know could there be advanced jet aircraft that have some of these capabilities and the the interesting thing is that they even went to germany and they went to russian sources of intelligence it's like could this be do they have rockets or missiles and and the answer was no which really was a problem because when you read the memos you can see that the air intelligence staff think that they've got it you know what you know there is an easy answer to this and when it turns out not to be an easy answer the whole thing changes and interestingly enough from a historical standpoint at that point in time the air force gets rid of the entire first set of investigators which were operating under a project called sign and replaces them with another set under a project called grudge now maybe that doesn't mean anything but it sure sounds like it does in, in any event, to answer your question, even back in those earliest days, we knew that whatever was being observed was operating at an extreme speed, even supersonic speeds, even then, okay? We knew that it would, had the ability to accelerate faster than any of our aircraft. As a matter of fact, they, they would be recorded that it could accelerate faster than you could see, literally speed of a bullet. Okay, this thing disappears from view when it wants to move. By the way, it can hover, so it can go from hovering, station keeping, to some high max speed, so high that you can't see it instantaneously. We can't catch it. And, and so the interesting thing is that there's a profile there of a device that can hover, it can, can station keep in position, it can accelerate under an extreme g-load an extremely g-load that certainly no human could bear we're talking about hundreds of g's and the interesting part of that is 
there's an implication there, not just for the G loading on a potential occupant, but on the structure itself. We know of no physical structure, no composition of any size, let's say larger than a bullet, <laughs> that can do that and stay intact. So there's a material science issue there as well. There's the issue of the fact that there is no breaking of the sound barrier. There's no audible shock wave. So whatever this device go, it can it can transition through the air as if the air is not a barrier at all. So even from the first, you could spell out a technology that we didn't have, that we knew the Russians didn't have, that the Germans hadn't had, that nobody had. And the fascinating thing is that technology is the same thing that we see in this century. Whatever they are, the UAPs have the same capabilities now, 60 years later, 70 years later, that they had then. And our aircraft have mo no more chance of staying with them or following them now than we did then. So relatively speaking, their technology hasn't improved, but it's still as far ahead of us as it was back then. And ours, our vaunted technology, the good news is we can take better pictures and infrared or video, that sort of thing. All we can really do is capture a better picture of something that we still can't catch. <laughs> do you, are, are there any good theories as to, you know, there's been the allegations, uh, both past and present of, of crash retrieval programs. Um, in reverse engineering programs from the United States and, and likely other, you know, uh, governments. I think one of the things that befuddles, you know, a lot of people new to the subject is, you know, well, why are these things crashing? If they're so advanced, why are they crashing? Are these, is that a result of that it's just a numbers game? You know, if you have just millions of visitors, you know, <laughs> if you have enough traffic, you're going to have some traffic accidents. Are they gifts? Are they, you know, leaving us some of this technology to reverse engineer? Or have we learned to to maybe shoot some of them or disable some of them in the in the air? Is there what's what are your views? What do we know about any of those things? What are kind of the crash crash retrievals were really not a thing, I would say, until the nineties. I mean, there was no discussion. Yeah, there are there a lot of documents about crashes, yeah, but they were all hoaxes. Or they were, I mean, so yeah, things did crash and the FBI, actually the FBI got so fed up with it that they told the Air Force they weren't going to go look at any more of them because they're just people playing games with them. And the Air Force said, well, okay. And the Air Force doesn't have a body of reports from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s of crashes. That That is something new. We have to accept the fact that we didn't learn about crashes from anybody until people started talking about it 50, 60 years later. And I have to tell you, as a, at least a pseudo-historian, that's a really dangerous thing. Uh, if you have no first-day evidence, nothing in the records, if people weren't reporting it back then and suddenly people start talking about it, unfortunately, Roswell was the real trigger for that. And now even Kevin Randall, who did amazing work in investigating Rand, will tell you that a lot of the people that came forth to talk to them with the more, more sensationals were hoaxes. They really were, sadly. Uh, and even his take on Roswell is that something did come down that we don't know about. Uh, he Could it 
have been a part of a secret research project. Actually, that's another story in itself is in regard to Sona boys and high-level atmospheric balloons in any event. But the point is, he's come down to, even after having written books on hundreds of crashes, of this is the only one he's still comfortable with. And I, I think the, the people that really have dedicated themselves are really not comfortable with the crash retrieval thing. Uh, it, it doesn't pan out. What, what has panned out is there are a few instances of materials, not artifacts or pieces, but let's say metal residue that have been recovered, that have been analyzed, and that do offer some spectral analysis that show that they're not standard manufactured materials. Don't know. Maybe something did crash in the ocean. One of the most solid examples comes from something that might have crashed in the ocean and magnesium was recovered from it. But I, I, that's an area that gets a lot of talk. One of the things, though, it could be resolved right now because I'm sure you've seen it. AARO, after the Grush and the Whistleblower Committee hearings and everything, has actually published a statement on their website an official government statement saying that as of right now, legislation from Congress has waived any requirement for classification, any, any confidentiality agreement, anybody that claims to have handled, seen, touched a crashed object is, there's no, they're not bound. Whatever they thought might have bound them, they go to ARO right now and ARO will interview them, and the, the thing is, they it's no longer a classifications issue. So they waived all it. I have never seen language like this in any government document before, waiving that. So someone is taking the claims very seriously. Let's put it that way. And if they're real, then they should be put to bed by AARO because they have the authority to waive anything. Yes. And with the UAP Disclosure Act, one of the, I mean, which is just a fascinating read. Anybody listening that has not actually taken the time and read through the, you know, the legislation um, or the proposed legislation, it, it's just fascinating what's in there. One of the pieces that always jumps out at me, you know, re-reviewing -re it, I've read it several times now, is the the eminent domain language, which I find very interesting. And, and also, I imagine... Are there any, is there any historical precedent for something so unusual? Not that I'm familiar with. There is not. And I, and I'm in another subject right now where a foundation I'm associated with, we're actually suing the National Archives, okay, over some document releases. And I can tell you, I, there's never language like this before. I, I wish we had language like this in other areas of history, but this is, it is sensational. I, I couldn't believe what I was reading when I first read it. It's like, you guys finally did what w one other remark on the crash retrieval thing one of the thing that really things that really drove that and I, I hate to say this is there was a book published uh by an air force general named philip corso which i think was the stimulus for much of this and the problem is once you start dialogues about like this going they're self-perpetuating he made a lot of claims about technology release uh, fiber optics, semiconductor materials, all of those have been investigated at great length. And there, there's a real world history behind all of them. 
We don't know what compelled him to say what he said. What we know is it, it's just not true. Uh, that, so that, that has driven this. The, the other thing that's driven this, unfortunately, is back in the early days, there were some cover stories that the CIA did plant for various things, whether they were the U-2, the SR-71, DARPA projects. Cover stories have been planted at different points in time that have fed this as well to disinformation. And that's just the reality of what happens. So once you mix it all together, uh, I wish AARO luck, and I'm glad they have that legislation. <laughs> yeah, I, I tell people I, I've kind of created a, a working model for, for beginners. And this is, this, is, this is how we visualize it. What I say is, look, what makes this subject really complicated, you could divide it into maybe four, four general buckets. Here's how we do it. And feel free to opine on this. You, you, you probably have a better working mental model on this than, than we do. But we look at it as in four categories. One, you have the hoaxes, of which they're numerous. They've always been around. They get more sophisticated with you know CGI and other stuff. Second, you have there. We we know now for for a fact, you know, because of you know your work and the archives and stuff like that, that there were also legitimate disinformation campaigns. And then you have what we do know: the the science, the data, the radar data. Like, hey, something's going on. And then you have when you really you know you get into a lot of this too is you have some of the complexities around what I'm just, for lack of a better term, the phenomenon, it's strange. It's not just these objects, it's effects on people. You know, maybe the connection between consciousness as, as many have looked at. Um, and it gets very, it's, it's, it's a little bit abstract. It's not so easy to just pin down and say, hey, this is, you know, E.T. from Alpha Centauri visiting us and we're dealing with an advanced civilization. There's, there's some more complex things I suspect uh, to it. So you have those kind of four categories. And to your point, yeah, you, you put all that together. Yeah, good luck. It's not, it's not the easiest, it's not the easiest, you know, domain to to just tread into and 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 get a grip of what's what's going on. And so, and that's by the way, one of the reasons we, we do this show is that we want to help people kind of parse through some of the noise. Um, I'm sure you 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 saw the um, the other day we had the Mexican uh, UAP congressional hearing. And you know, everybody thought those bodies were new. Peru's been flashing those, you know, those bodies around for for years now, and and it just creates a lot of noise and mess, and it's it's confusing, and 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 nobody knows what to to jump on. Um, Larry, here's a question for you. Tell me if this is accurate or, or, or not. These are things I've heard and I understood, but I, I'm not sure that it's accurate, and you would know. Is it true that it's not just that we have better quality sensors. What I've heard is over the last couple of years, there's been a exponential increase in, let's say, sightings, you know, uh, observable, observable data. And what I heard, and again, I'm not sure if this is true, what I heard is that that is not just because we've got better data systems, you know, better, you know, radar systems or anything else. It's that there are actually we're going through a period of increased encounters. Like we are seeing more stuff and not just because we've got better things to pick them up. Is that, is that correct? I want to just kind of take the opportunity speaking to you as an expert to fact, fact check that. That, that is true uh, with a condition. Uh, what's happening is there are, there is no sign. Of, of, of course, one of the problems is we no longer have access to all the reporting. 
And matter of fact, it's unclear whether there was any reporting going on two years ago of anything other than uh, an aircraft safety incident. We had no UAP, UFO reporting mechanism, and we're still unclear. We've seen some forms that have come out of AARO, but what, what there always was essentially where there were operational reports, operational security reports, situational reporting reports that would go partway up the chain of the command. Let's say I'm running a carrier group, and let's say something's coming over my carrier group, whether it's drones or whatever it might be, I need to generate a situation report if I react to it. That report was going to a certain level of command within the Navy. It was going towards the squadron command. Maybe it would get to San Diego. That didn't mean it got to Navy intelligence. Before, at least when the Air Force was in charge, it was taking reports from everybody into air technical intelligence. We did not have for 40 years afterwards any collection of that nature. So in terms of your question, I don't have any source of vetted legal official reports that I can look at. What has happened, quite frankly, is once the Air Force ceased in 1970 taking reports, you could call the FAA to report something. They would send you to a local UFO group, maybe. Or if you call the Air Force, they would say, we're not doing that anymore. Not our problem. So there was no, I, I can't do a relative measurement of collections. Unfortunately, what did happen was with the advent of the online technology we have, databases were set up to collect reports online. Text it, enter it, whatever, with no vetting whatsoever. So do I have more reports now? Do I have thousands of thousands of reports now? You bet. Are there any good to me? I, I'm sorry. No, not really, not to me, because they're not investigated and they're not invented. And in our studies that we have done, we had to create our own database, vet our own reports, in any event. The, the bottom line, so to answer your question, overall total numbers, you might see numbers, and I think uh, Rand looked at some numbers in a report. That comes from Newfork which is an online automated reporting system, which takes anything from anybody. I'm sorry. That's not... That's a huge problem. Yeah, that's not the, not the source of truth that you're looking for for data. Now, what has happened, there are a couple of... Only, only the Navy. We have no idea what Homeland was seeing, what the Air Force was seeing. Only the Navy started encountering this burst of incidents that you're talking about in very localized areas over their deployment and test ranges off San Diego, off Norfolk, and it got to be so frequent. And, and the problem was, and many, especially off Norfolk on the East Coast, these weren't classic UAPs. They weren't doing what we just talked about. Extreme rates of speed, uh, high acceleration, they were just sitting there. You know, could they be balloons? Could they be whatever? But the Navy pilots were concerned enough, so they did start getting reported as air traffic issues. And that's the only reason this whole thing really surfaced, is that even in, in the most well-talked-about TikTok case off San Diego, 
a radar operator initiated the whole thing because there were appearances of UAPs over a task force exercise that were so continual and descending to such a low level, the radar operator said, look, we're going to start exercises in that area. We may run into those things. We, we got to deal with this. But it, was, it wasn't a national security alert. It was an air safety alert. So to answer your question, yeah, in a couple of areas, it has really gone off the scale, made itself visible, but that's a very tiny picture of the overall. If somebody asked me, Larry, what about those ICBM sites? Anything happened to them since 1975? No clue. What about the strategic air command bases? What about Whiteman, Missouri, where the B-2s are? No clue. We just don't know. There's this huge gap from a national security standpoint that we can't see. And I'm not sure that anybody will ever see. The only, only way anybody ever retrieved any records on those ICBM incidents in 1975 was to do FOIA, Freedom of Information Request, and get information from the, the National Military Command Center or from NORAD on individual incidents, and those guys did a fantastic job. But it, unless you pry it out that way, and the thing is, you can't request something that you don't know exists. So they they managed to hear about the incidents anecdotally, requested information to support them. Great, got it. What happened since 1975? No clue. Yeah, that's it. That's a that's such an important point is that we have these gaps, and you know, which is worth commenting here you know another kind of shout out to the to the community investigators and researchers like yourself that have that have stitched together this picture for us to even have a clue as to what's going on even even within these gaps but yes the gaps are significant and again for the audience's sake because I, I think a lot of people the tic-tac video is pretty well known and it's kind of gone pop culture uh, mainstream but for people that are not as familiar as you and I are with the actual incidents uh, with our, our naval fleets. I think it was Kevin Day was the the radar operator. And quoting him loosely, he was saying it was, it was raining UFOs. I mean, it was just streaming out of the sky, like just dropping from 80,000 feet, you know, and they were all over the place. And so most people think, oh, maybe it's, you know, Tic Tac, you know, with, with Fravor and, uh, and his pilots. Um, but no, they had been, as you said, this was a continuous issue and there were not just a few, there were a lot of these things. You know, I'd like to take maybe the last, you know, 10 minutes here and 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 get your get your views and feel free to to speculate, you know, hypothesize. What do you think has what is this? What are we dealing with? Is this a are we dealing with an advanced civilization? Is it us from the future? Like, what's your, what's what's your best, you know, hypothesis as to 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 what this is all about? Well, one thing that is clear: we're dealing with an unidentified intelligence, and and that's the way I like to look at it. There is a whole phenomenological aspect to this, an experiential aspect. I think one of the things we haven't done is is to parse this out. There really should be, it's just like biology or anything else. You, you need to study things independently to really, if you mix everything together, you're lost, okay? But in terms of these actual devices, things that can, 
can reflect radar. Okay, we know it's there if it reflects radar. Okay, if it emits emits heat, we got an infrared signature. We know it's there. This is not strictly experiential. You know, it's not a hologram. It's got to be there. If it bounces radar back to me, in many instances, if it transmits an electronic signal to me, which has occurred, uh, many of the UAPs actually transmitted known radar frequencies to our own aircraft. It's kind of like, oh, wait a minute. Somebody's trying to talk to me. Um, okay, fine. Actually, it's interesting enough in some instances, they actually even sent coded messages to us. The same codes that we used to identify our aircraft, they're broadcasting us to them. And it, it's great. Here's one incident that I really love over Radar Station Arizona. It happened twice. This thing comes in at 12,000 miles an hour. Stops. Okay, that, that's good by itself. Then it gets interrogated with a, def a defense radar with IFF. It's kind of like, okay, I'm sending you a code and if you're if you've got a transponder on, you're going to recognize that and you're going to give me a code back. And the code ba comes back and says, yeah, I'm a friendly aircraft. Wait a minute. I don't think you're a friendly aircraft. If you could suddenly come at 12,000, <laughs> what are you? Okay. Anyway, uh, the, the blue book explanation ultimately was that was a balloon. Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, but to, to answer your question, again, as far back as 1952, one of the Air Force staff members did a study and said, just based on nothing other than the fact that these devices, these things, can interact with each other. They can maneuver with each other. Multiple objects maneuver at high speed with each other. These are intelligent. There's, there's no doubt that intelligence is there. There's no doubt that unconventional technology is there. I think we have to accept that. And, and we haven't accepted that. And and that has nothing to do with extraterrestrial. Again, I'm annoyed by NASA when they say we're not look. We found nothing to indicate extraterrestrial. I don't. That's you should be looking for an unidentified intelligence. Ask the first question: Is there intelligence in play? Is there unconventional technology in play? Then let's go from there. Don't forget the extraterrestrial stuff, but get back to the basics. So yes. Intelligence is there, proved over and over again, the fact that these things do not act covertly. There's no sign of them really disguising that they're there. The, the only thing that we've seen in long-term patterns, and we're now studying what was going on in the public domain versus the military domain during the time of our study, is that there was a definite transition from daytime activity to nighttime activity, which is interesting. But there, in, in terms of you go, well, then they're trying to disguise themselves and be convert. No, they still have on bright lights and they're still really obvious and people were, that's not covert. Sorry. No, 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 no. Clearly, if these want, if they wanted not to be seen, they can not be seen. So they're not behaving covertly, especially in the first years, they were highly visible, highly visible to aircraft. They would approach aircraft closely. They would engage with aircraft, maneuvering around them. Um, so they, they weren't covert. They weren't trying to disguise themselves. They weren't trying to conceal that technology. You know, 
Was there a message in that? I can't say there was a message in that. Maybe there was, maybe there wasn't, but there was no attempt to concealment uh, of either the fact that they're intelligent and responsive or they have really good technology. We don't. Do you think that in the coming decade, we will have more answers or more questions? Yeah, you know, as a as a ratio. So so we look at you know if for for every one answer we get you know that opens up ten questions. As it seems like we're getting closer to perhaps disclosure, if that's what it what it is. Um, do you do you think we 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 speculate that maybe the 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 question the answers ratio is gonna go up a lot. We're going to just be left with, you know, the more we learn, the more questions we're going to have, which I think is a great thing. I, I think that's, you know, exciting. But what's what are your views? Well, I, I guess what concerns me is unless you address those two questions, you're not going to make any progress. And I don't see those questions being asked. AARO is simply going for identification. And, and one of the problems with what AARO is doing is they're doing exactly what the Air Force and Blue Book did decade after decade. They're looking at each incident by itself and trying to explain each incident by itself. If they can explain it, great. Otherwise, it goes into an unidentified bucket. Now, if it goes into an unidentified bucket, who's looking at it to answer that question? Is anybody looking any further? Have they turned it over to DARPA? Have they turned it over to... MIT, have they, I haven't seen any discussion of that. They're just doing buckets. That is not going to answer. The, the only question they will answer is, are they you know, drones? Are they Chinese? Or are they, you know, are they, but those aren't the real UAPs that we're talking about. So I don't see any, getting any answers until the questions are right. And they're, they're not asking the right questions. And what they're also not doing, so let's say that there are three questions. Are they intelligent? Is there actually unconventional technology that could be addressed and studied? And if those two things are correct, what are their intentions? What are they doing? Which is what my study group is tackling. Certainly nobody's tackling intentions. They haven't tackled the first two yet. There's no sign that they're going to. And you can't do intention study without a full body of history. As long as you're looking at one at a time and you don't have any time dimension to it, you're never going to get there in terms of intentions. Uh, so, no, I'm, I'm not sanguine that, they're, that we're going to get any better answers. Uh, something you and I talked about earlier, if you simply accepted the fact that they can do what we observe them doing, there should be teams of physicists, either in an academic environment or, quite frankly, at DARPA. Yeah, somebody saying, look, if they can do it, we can do it. How do we do it? Is it quantum entanglement? Is it plasma physics? Is it, but you have to accept, you know, as long as you remain in denial, then you're not going to make any progress. So, um, I, I would like to say that I see a lot of potential, but unless unless the dialogue changes, I think we're gonna we're gonna play the same game that we've played before. Look at them one at a time, stuff them in an unidentified bucket that nobody really wants to tackle, no in, no more than they did in 1952, 
and that's where it will stay. That makes perfect sense. And, you know, that's a, that's a great, you know, point to, to leave the audience on. We we're very fortunate. The, the audience for this show are a lot of folks like myself. We come from capital markets. You know, there's a lot of talented fund managers here. And so for those of you listening, this is a, a call to action. There is indisputable evidence that we are dealing with some form of unidentified intelligence. And I love that term that you're, 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 you're using Larry. And so this is a call to action. We need the private sector to to come together, put pressure on on the government, you know, put teams of physicists and get them on this. And I think that's the most important point. We have something fascinating going on. We should not be ignoring it. We we should be, you know, furthering the pursuit of, you know, of science and and understanding on this. Larry, thank you so much for your time today. Tremendously, you know, grateful for your work, your decades of work on this subject. You are a a, a rare find. And none of us would have any comprehension of, of what's going on out there if it wasn't for the fine work that, that you and your colleagues have done. So uh, thank you very much for that. And, uh, and we'll certainly have to get you back here on, on the show again for, for some follow-up as, as hopefully more information comes out. Thank you, Larry. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. One of the best conversations I've had in a long time. Likewise. Likewise. Well, Niels, thank you so much. And I'll turn this back over to you. Thank you so much, Larry and David, for a super insightful and enjoyable conversation. Wow, what can I say? This was certainly the most galactic-oriented episode so far in the series. Larry came across to me as very credible, dismissing a lot of the sensational information that we have been presented with in the last year or two. I think what I was most surprised by was to hear Larry share the fact that since the 1970s, we simply have not been collecting the data and done proper reports on these incidents. And even with the 280 or so reports from the last year or two in the US, he believes that many of them are simply not credible. That, of course, does not mean that he doesn't believe they exist, since distance seemed to be no issue for them. In Larry's view, they are most likely interstellar. Perhaps Larry is correct that even after all these years, we're still asking the wrong questions and that the starting point really should be, do we think we are dealing with unidentified intelligence? Well, no doubt this topic and story will continue to evolve from here and I think we all need to pay attention to it. That is it for today. Make sure you go and follow Larry's and David's work because, as you can tell from today's conversation, there are many ways to look at things and sometimes we need to change our worldview and we certainly look forward to challenging your worldview as our series continue. From David and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode and in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.